Please turn in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. So we'll be looking at the first chapter, chapter one, considering verses five through ten. So Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five through ten. Hear with me then, brothers and sisters, the reading of God's holy word. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Uh, brothers and sisters, my, my eldest right now is reading a biography on Martin Luther for school. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us here, have read a biography at some point in our life about some prominent figure. And what's true about most biographies is that they don't start with the glory in which this person has come to receive as they reach the, the pinnacle of their career. Right? Those stories don't start in the middle or in the end. They usually start in the, in the beginning with the, the childhood or the, the upbringing of this prominent person, whether it's a, an ex-president or a, a sports figure or an entertainer or some great war hero. And yet what's true of most of the stories that I'm familiar with is that these figures have usually had some sort of rough upbringing. They haven't had a, like a normal childhood. Uh, take, for example, any sports figure that you that you hear about. In order to get to the, the point in their career that they were at, it took training day in and day out, night and day and weekends. When all the other children of the neighborhood were getting together to go play and to go to the movie theaters, this person was staying at home honing their craft. They went through suffering as they rose early and went to bed late. They suffered as they put their body through... Uh, Tons of exercises, almost to its, its breaking point. But it was all for a purpose. Right? They embraced the highs and lows of everything they experienced with their eyes looking forward to something in the future. Knowing that if they only endured long enough, and if they were able to perfect their craft well enough, that they would reach the pinnacle and they would reach what it is that they've been pursuing. And I think that there is something comparable to this in the Christian life and from what we read here in verses 5 through 10. As the church throughout its history, the church from its very infancy has been a suffering church. And we looked at that last week in verse 4. Right? This is a, an ordinary part of the Christian life, we said, suffering. And yet we live in America. And so our life isn't, isn't this... Uh, terrible thing is it no we have we have great lives here in this country we experience uh, great things we have great earthly enjoyments yet also as christians we experience great spiritual enjoyments as well but what is also true of us is we experience discomfort and unease 
We, dis- uh, we experience highs and lows in the Christian life. We experience persecution and suffering and trials and temptation and daily spiritual battles and warfare, psychologically as well as physically. But like the athlete who is willing to endure hardship for something greater, we too are willing to endure hardship for something greater as well. We too are looking for something outside of our present condition to help us persevere until the end. Now for carnal man and woman, that might be their own glory. And for the Christian too, I think it is glory. Right? We endure hardship, but unlike natural man, it's not our own glory that we are pursuing. It's not our own glory that motivates and drives us, but rather our eyes are fixed on the unveiling of Christ's glory as He returns. We look forward to the glory of God as He glorifies Himself in us when He comes to relieve us of our sufferings and our affliction as He extinguishes our afflictors as He comes in righteous judgment. You see, the glory that this world seeks after oftentimes is evil and it is wicked because the glory they seek after and pursue, they look at as being to their greatest good and they want it at all costs apart from Christ and with no regard to His glory. And although the Christian, yes, we are promised glory, that is not the reason that we are willing to endure hardship. And it is also for the same reason that we endure glory, that our Lord God in heaven allows the church to be stricken with suffering and with persecution. And that reason for both of us is for God's glory. We endure hardship. God allows us to be stricken for His glory. I heard it said recently as I was listening to a panel of Christian speakers take questions and they were, they were answering these questions. And I, I believe it was John MacArthur. I, don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. But he said something that I thought was pretty profound. And this is what he said. He said that the glory of God's name is more important to him than our lives. The glory of God's name is more important to him than your life and my life. And now people might hear that and they might shudder. They might say, what are you saying? Because as, as man, we usually think we're like the pinnacle of creation, right? That everything revolves around us. How can God continue to function if He doesn't have man, right? That is what we think. But what I think Pastor MacArthur was getting at when he said this is that God's glory is intrinsic to His being. It is glory that He has in and of Himself. As creation, we don't add to the glory of God, nor can we diminish the glory of God. But you see, without the glory of God, God ceases to be God. It is infinite and essential glory that He has. And that didn't change when He chose to create us. That is why His glory is more important than you and I. Because even without creation, He is still the God of glory. He doesn't need us to be the God of glory. And so that didn't change when He condescended and when He covenanted with man. But now, brothers and sisters, we get to see the glory of God in part revealed in all that He does, in His actions, in what He's created. 
And so even looking at our text today, everything that is leading up to the unveiling of Christ, everything that occurs in this inter-advental period between the first and second comings of Christ, the sufferings of the church, our endurance through trial, all the way up to that final day when He returns, is primarily, brothers and sisters, about God's glory. Even as we look at a text like today, at, at first glance as we read verses 5 through 10, you would say, brother, this is a text about the judgment of God that is coming. And as I, I read and I reread this, and I, and I thought about it, and I contemplated and meditated about it, it certainly is a passage about the judgment of God's coming. But what I think it primarily is about is about the glory of God. Because what is the purpose of His judgment and His coming? It is for His own glory. It is for His own glory that He is coming. And so this is really the overarching theme, I think, of chapter 1 from my perspective. It is about the revelation of the glory of God in all that takes place, especially in the life of the church. As Paul even makes reference to God's glory twice in chapter 1. Look with me Starting at verse 10, please. As Paul says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's God's glory today, brothers and sisters, that we want to to peek into, that we want to gaze into this morning. And hopefully by the end of our study here, we can be awe-inspired, that we can be lifted up in wonder as we look at God's glory in these three respects today. And so our three points this morning will be this. Point one will be God's glory revealed in the saints. Point two will be God's glory revealed in the wicked. And point three will be God's glory revealed at His coming. So God's glory revealed in the saints, in the wicked, and at His coming. So in verse five, Paul says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. You see, the Thessalonian church enduring suffering with constant faith for which Paul praised them for last week, not only made them a model to other churches, but it was also evidence of the righteous judgment of God, Paul says. It was their patience and their faith. It was their loyalty and their allegiance to God through all of this that bore witness to what God has already done for them. He has already ruled in their favor in the heavenly court. He has already declared them to be righteous. He has already made them worthy of the kingdom of God. And so now their perseverance through suffering simply is a a testifying factor. It's a, a testament to that reality of God's righteous judgment in them. And so Paul is writing here this morning to relieve the saints of their worry with these encouraging words, yet... At the same time, he's bringing them comfort, letting them know that the suffering that they're enduring is not coincidental, is not accidental, is not by chance. 
but rather their suffering serves a purpose. And their faithfulness through it ought to be proof to them that they stand in favor and in right standing with God. It ought to be proof positive to them of their standing before God. Let me give you an illustration. Last week I met with with Pastor Bill to discuss a few things. And I can't remember how this was brought up, but he, he told me about this couple that he knew maybe some 20 plus years ago. And he was telling me that this uh, Christian man and woman, they, they, they had their, their first child together. Yet this child was born with uh, underdeveloped lungs. And so the, this young child ends up passing away in the hospital. And he said, apparently in the room adjacent to them is also another couple who is going through something similar. Their young child just passed away likewise in the room next door. And yet he said that they were there were two different reactions that occurred. In the, in the reaction of the, the Christian couple in that first room was prayer unto God, was the singing of psalms, uh, was the exaltation of God's name. Yet in the other room what they had was the, you could hear going on is the cursing of God, the, un, the unraveling of them at the thought of their child passing away. Now, I myself can't imagine what it's like to ever lose a child like that, for a wife to to carry a child for nine months to give birth and for that child to pass. I I personally don't know how I would react in such a situation. I don't think any of us, if if you haven't been in those situations, know how you'd react. Obviously, we hope and we pray that we would react like the first couple, but we don't know for certain. Yet, I give you this example as an illustration that when oftentimes when we suffer, our first reaction is to get angry with God. It is to curse God. It is to, to question the reasoning of God. Right? But what we forget, brothers and sisters, is we get lost in the vacuum of our own life and what's going on in our world. What we forget about when we are being overtaken by grief and sorrow and emotion and worries is that these are opportunities for us to demonstrate and to testify to the fact that we are children of God. These are opportunities for us to glorify God in them and through them. That's why Pastor Bill told me actually this this woman in the first story was asked then to come back and to help other women who have struggled with the same loss like she has because of the way in which she responded through that trial. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, that in everything we do, we are to do to the glory of God. This is man's chief end in life. This is the reason that you were created. It's so that you might glorify God. That is your chief purpose in life. We see this in the life of someone like Job. What was his response when the Lord allowed Satan to sift him? And to kill his children. And his wife said, just curse God and die. What was Job's response? He refused to detract from the glory of God through all of his suffering. And suffering as a Christian, it seems like, is the place for some reason that God's glory is most visible before the world. I mean, we can even look to the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he says, let this cup pass for me, 
But not my will, but Your will be done, Lord. Jesus, in effect, is saying to His Father, if Your glory, Lord, will shine brightest in my suffering and death, so let it be. And we ought to have this same mind as Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, that God's glory shines in the ashes of the martyrs. Isn't this true? Now in America, we don't have to suffer like others in the world or like others throughout the history of the church have had to suffer. We don't have to worry about being killed for our faith. But this no less means that we are to seek God's glory at every turn. We are constantly to be seeking His glory. Whether as Christians our trials are, are big and massive, whether we are in hiding for fear of our life, or whether our trials are minuscule. And it is in fact this that has helped to draw converts to the Christian faith throughout all of history. Think about Paul as he is imprisoned in jail in Philippians chapter 1 in our study. His fearlessness and his boldness to continue to proclaim the word in the face of death. And what are we told that that that, that did? Remember the other saints who went into hiding out of fear that the same would happen to them? What are we told happened? They seen Paul's fearlessness and his boldness and they came out from hiding and they started to proclaim the word of the Lord. No longer afraid or scared. It is the Christian way of dying that appeared to so many in the early church. Seeing that they embraced whatever wicked punishment was to befall them. Because they knew where they were going and they knew that, that dying in such a manner was to glorify God. I've used this example before, but uh, think of Ignatius of Antioch in the year 110 as he's being led to slaughter. He's actually killed by being torn apart by wild animals. And the Christians write to him and say, we're ready to come free you. And Ignatius says to them, no, don't free me. Rather, pray for me that not only I live as a Christian, but I die like one as well. And so we, brothers and sisters, must live as Christians in whatsoever circumstance God has placed us in, recognizing that this is our opportunity to glorify God as we are those vessels of mercy Paul speaks of in chapter 9, by which the riches of the glory of God are made manifest. When this Thessalonian church endured suffering, it, was, it bore witness to the world of God's riches of His glory poured out amongst these saints. It was God's strength and His might that allowed them to endure. It was the Holy Spirit living inside of them that allowed them to persevere in faith through trials. And so, brothers and sisters, no matter what we endure, what little sufferings we might endure here on earth, let us be reminded that we have already been made children of the kingdom of God. Right? Christ went to go prepare a place for us. And while we wait, we are being prepared for heaven. We are being fitted for heaven, made ready for heaven, prepared for heaven. But like Paul, we ought to be able to say, just as he does in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And as we wait for the day of the Lord, brothers and sisters, when we go through those highs and lows, I call upon you to reflect on the glory of God. 
consider often that glory that is to be revealed to us. The glorious Christ coming down from the clouds to glorify Himself in us. The saints' present sufferings were embraced because they sought to promote the glory of God. Their sufferings were also evidence of the righteous judgment of God, which was to glorify Himself in the saints and to make us worthy of His kingdom. Now, unfortunately, many people, and many Christians, in fact, believe that God's glory can only be seen in His righteous judgment of vindicating His church and in keeping that promise. They don't see that God's glory can also be manifested in His righteous judgment of the wicked. Right? They think that God can have no glory in the punishment of the wicked. That, in fact, the judgment upon the wicked detracts from the glory of God. That it diminishes the glory of God. And this is why so many try to escape this part of God's coming. Why they are so often embarrassed by the doctrine of hell. Because they don't see God's glory in it at all. But is this true? Can God's glory be seen in the judgment of the wicked? Well, this is what we're going to try to answer this morning in point two, which is God's Glory revealed in the wicked. So look, please, with me once more at verses 6 through 9 as we read this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And so the first question we must begin with to understand if God is glorified through the destruction of the wicked is, is God's judgment right? Is God's judgment upon the wicked right? If it is, then what is the nature of that judgment? And then finally, how is God glorified in that judgment? And so first we must come to understand that God has given to every man and woman the ability to reason. He has given us a conscience so that we know right and wrong. And so by the light of nature itself, we all understand that certain behavior deserves punishment and we all understand that other behavior deserves reward. Right? What, does, what does Cain do when he kills his brother? Right? He, he flees, he runs and hides, he hopes, because he knows what's coming. He knows punishment is coming for his actions. Right? If someone harms your family member, what is it you want? You want them to receive justice. If our children do something really good at home, they look to their parents for a reward. It's like built into us. Right? We know certain behavior deserves punishment, another behavior deserves reward. But what is also evident to all, and what also is, is, um, is obvious and built into all men, is that God exists. We all know that God exists, and yet man still denies this reality. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived since the creation of the world. And so it is not as if man can say, I don't, 
I don't know that God exists. They cannot say that. Rather, they know God exists and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Or they make God to be this impotent God in their minds where He's impersonal and He doesn't care what's going on in this world. Or He's not powerful enough to do anything about the hostility that is shown toward Him. But what does Paul say later in Romans chapter 5? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Contempt for God's glory. Hostility towards God's glory. Indifference to God's glory are all grounds for death. And so we see that of course the destruction of the wicked is righteous. Because as Paul tells us, the reason for their destruction is is grounded on two facts. The first is they don't know God and the second is they don't obey the Gospel. Now someone might say, well hey, you just a minute ago said every, every, all men know God. And now you're saying they're being judged because no men know God. Which one is it? The simple answer is, is that we all know God by nature. But we, all, we don't all know God salvifically in Christ. We know God exists, but they don't know the God who exists. They know Him as terrible judge. They don't know Him as Heavenly Father. They don't hold communion with Him. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they did what? They exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man. See, they refused to glorify God as He has revealed Himself. They have said, No, God, we don't want Your glory. We refuse to recognize You. Rather, we are going to make ourselves or others the object of glory. And what betrayal is this? What betrayal? The God who created them and has given them everything that they have. And what does the earthly king do for such betrayal? We can look at King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel in the book of Daniel. What does he do when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow the knee and to worship the king? He throws them into the furnace so that they might be killed. How much more so the punishment ought to be for the wicked who refuse to glorify and honor God rightly as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Instead, they want to eradicate God from their minds. And so they turn their backs willingly on eternal life. I mean, listen to what Jesus says in His high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right? They don't have eternal life because they refuse to know God. But although they don't desire to know God, brothers and sisters, we as Christians ought to see something glorious from this prayer. There is something glorious revealed to us in the words here of Jesus. As St. Augustine says of this passage, if knowledge of God is eternal life, we tend toward living inasmuch as we advance in knowledge. You understand that? If knowledge of God is eternal life, we tend toward living inasmuch as we advance in knowledge of God. This is one reason why we should never be envious of the world. No matter what they have or accumulate, no matter how much prosperity it appears they have. Because no matter what they accumulate, they are nothing but dead men walking. But for you and I, 
we can experience life everlasting in part more and more even on earth as we advance in knowledge of God. And so this ought to drive us to the Scriptures to learn more about God. This ought to drive us to sit under the preached Word. For even though we might have little according to this world, you might be the poorest person in the world, but you could be overflowing in the riches of Christ if you believe. Oh, how the unbelieving world ought to be envious of you and I! Yet they are too blind to see. And because of this, the Lord will come to restore order and to inflict vengeance on those who afflicted us. And so we see that because man has denied God, because they have disobeyed His Word, this demonstrates that the judgment of God upon the wicked is a righteous judgment. They are deserving of it. And so then what are we told their end will be? What is the nature of their end, of the judgment of God? We are told it is eternal destruction. And how does Paul describe eternal destruction? He describes it as being away from the presence of the Lord and of the glory of His might. You see, if the reward for believers is to be in the presence of the Lord while yet living, it must be then that to be away from the presence of the Lord for the wicked means that they too are living. If we are living in the presence of the Lord, they must be living outside of the presence of the Lord, which means not annihilation. Also, it must be eternal torment, eternal destruction, because death in itself is not a sufficient punishment. Death is not a sufficient punishment. Death, in fact, in the glorification of the soul is not sufficient reward for the saints. Death means separation of body and soul. Our soul may be perfected, but we are still waiting in heaven if you die for the, for, to be reunited, body and soul. This is God's intention in creation for believer. But likewise, death itself is too private of a punishment. Think about it. When someone dies, what happens? Their closest family and friends know about it. 100, 200, 300 people. But God's glory, His name, His honor have been besmirched by the ungodly. And so it demands public vindication. It demands a public vindication. And that's why when the Lord returns, all will be lifted up. All will be raised, the just and the unjust. So that everyone will see the church vindicated and everyone will see the rebellious cast into eternal hellfire. The triumph and vindication of God must be public. It must be for all to see. Only then is that sufficient punishment. And so seeing that their destruction is a part of God's righteous judgment, seeing that they are deserving of it because they do not know God and they do not obey His His gospel, they will be cast away from His presence for all of eternity. And in doing so, then we see God will be glorified. God will is glorified in the destruction of the wicked. Yes, He is. And how so? Well, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 5-7, through we read this, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and was, for you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. 
It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see, God's glory is seen in the execution of His will over all of mankind. And His judgments, we are told, are true and just because God Himself is true and He is just. And so His glory can be seen in both the mercy given to the saints and in the justice and eternal destruction of the wicked. And so then this brings us to our final point. And so let us conclude here this morning with point three, which is God's glory revealed at His coming. So look with me once more at verse 10. It says, When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, Christ is coming on that great and final day to be glorified in His saints. The end of this present age ends with the glory of God. The glory of God is the exclamation point put upon the end of this age. And He will be glorified by the saints as we praise Him for His judgments. He will be glorified in us as He presents us blameless before His throne. He will be glorified as He glorifies Himself in the saints where we will have now life incorruptible, life immortal, Suffering will cease. Pain will cease. Sin never again will plague humankind. We'll be overflowing in joy, in gladness, in admiration of God as we dwell in His presence, as we see Him face to face with the whole image of God made whole in us once again. But I want you to see that although we will be in the presence of God face to face, and we have said that judgment means the wicked are cast away from the presence of God. What we are saying is they are cast away from the benevolent presence of God. This is why eternal destruction will be a torment for them. Because they can never escape God. As God's presence is everywhere. Omnipresent. And so they will continue to hate God, but they cannot escape God. They will continue to feel His flaming fire in hell. But no longer will they feel kind, loving, tender presence. That is reserved for the saints alone. And so this ought to be a great encouragement for the Christian. Right? This should encourage us to continue in this life to seek that heavenly estate to continue to grow in knowledge of God, to continue to grow in obedience to His Word. But it was this, brothers and sisters, that the whole world has been pushing towards ever since the fall of man. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. And this is what those before us waited for, and this is today what we wait for. Because it all depends on Christ. The gathering of all things to Himself, John Owen says, is a glory reserved only for Him. He goes on to say, His glory is seen in the fact that He alone is fit for the task. And He alone can bear the weight of the glory. This is glory God purposed for His incarnate Son. And it was the greatest 
and highest glory that could be given to Christ. And so I hope in hearing and in understanding that our Lord's judgment and His coming primarily concerns His glory. We can stand amazed and in awe and in wonder of this glory of God revealed even in the suffering of the saints. Yet let us, brothers and sisters, continue to strive to glorify God in all aspects of our life. For this is our chief end. In everything that we think and say and we do, let us hunger after the glory of God. Let us thirst after the glory of God. Let us earnestly seek God's glory. As we look forward with great anticipation and expectation that glory yet to be revealed when Christ returns to gather His saints. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for revealing to us Your glory in the Scriptures and in creation. No man can offer up a sufficient excuse to the glorious God. You have called us to know You and to obey Your Gospel. And yet, Father, we are so thankful that You have given us the new heart and the new mind and the new affections in order that we might do as You have commanded. We pray, Lord, that as believers, as Christians, that we would be willing to endure suffering and hardship for Your namesake, for Your glory, for Your honor. Yet, Father, we pray that You would continue to fit us for heaven, that You would continue to fit us for that glory when Christ returns, where He may be glorified in the saints and we in Him. And so, Father, we come before You this morning and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.